Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And over the past couple days, we've been talking about new kinds of consumer cultures that rise up in the 18th and 19th centuries. A couple days ago, we talked about the general idea of the commercialization of British society in the 18th century. Yesterday, we talked about food in the 18th and 19th century. And today, we're going to be talking about clothes. So clothes were incredibly important and not just because they're what made people look cool or ugly or unfashionable or rich or poor. They took up a huge part of the amount of money that people spent. I think that it was probably the second or third biggest expenditure for people after food and housing. And think also of all the time that clothes took. They take the same amount of time today, but all the time that they took to launder, to dress, to dry, to press. Clothing was so important for the 18th and 19th centuries, so central to what it meant to be an everyday person, that even workhouses, places where the poor would go to basically get welfare that they earned through doing repetitive, shitty labor, even workhouses that were so badly run that people starved to death made sure that their inmates got clean linen. We're going to hone in on a couple themes this episode. First, I'm going to tell you the history of the man's suit, the three-piece suit from about 1666 to 1900 or so. Then we'll talk about how mass production with the advent of the sewing machine changed how clothes were made and bought. Then I'm going to take a brief detour to talk about dress reform in the 19th century before opening it up to talking about the big theme of fashion. So let's talk about the three-piece suit. One of the things that first got me interested in the big history of clothing was that it seemed to me that the tastes in clothing of a certain set of men in the 19th century have become the taste in clothing all around the world. If you look on the front page of any newspaper, if you see an important man, they're wearing a suit, sometimes a three-piece suit. It's often now women are wearing the three-piece suits as well. And that seemed kind of odd to me. Why did this sometimes unflattering, slightly boring clothing option become the uniform for pretty much anybody who wanted any sort of authority? Well, the big moment some scholars say that the three-piece suit started was in 1666, when King Charles II, who was newly restored to the throne, decided to have a change in fashion he donned what he called a vest, which was kind of like a big, long coat made out of English wool. And he said that this new fashion that he was pioneering, this new clothing choice of having a long vest was never going to change. What was he doing with this? Well, it was meant to signify a couple things. First, the idea was if you had a stable fashion, if you just had a vest and pants and a shirt, then fashion would stop in its tracks. English lords who kept on trying to one-up one another with their cool clothing choices, importing expensive silks and brocades and other cool stuff from France, would save their money because there'd just be one style. And additionally, this style would be made out of good, old, mercantilist, patriotic English wool. But to me, this moment, even though it's kind of nice, even though it's emblematic and symbol 
symbolic of a bunch of stuff, it doesn't hold water. If you look at pictures of male fashion from the 14th or 15th century to the present, there doesn't seem to be some sort of grand regime change in 1666 when King Charles suddenly declares that the vest is up there. No, it seems like there's more of a, a slow change that's happening incrementally throughout the years so that over the 18th and 19th centuries, you get male fashion that looks a lot like male fashion does today. Nevertheless, over the 18th century, certainly the three-piece suit becomes the dominant thing that a man wore, a jacket, a waistcoat, a shirt, and pants. And this meant that men's fashion, which sometimes looked a lot like women's fashion beforehand, became incredibly distinct by gender, and increasingly so. In the 18th century, these suits were stiff and formal, and long hair was in fashion. So naturally, what people did was they cut their hair really, really short, and they wore powdered wigs when they were out, which is why when you look at 18th century prints, you see these men with these huge, you know, manes of white hair tumbling over their shoulders. That was not anybody's real hair. Those were wigs that they wore. Also, shaving your head helped with the lice, but that's another matter. Um, hairdressers would cut and fashion these wigs as well so that they'd be in the latest styles. And, of course, humans being humans, the wig was a way that people judged one another. If your wig was kind of seedy or ill-fit, people knew that you were poor or didn't care about fashion. If your wig was lustrous and new and in the latest styles, people knew that you were cool. But one of the first big shifts in male fashion in this period came in the 1790s. In the 1790s, there was a ton of stuff going along, most notably the French Revolution, in which people started to get really grumpy at aristocrats. There was also this trend of kind of romantic sentimentality that was coming out of Rousseau that saw society and manners and politeness as these evil things that impinged on our natural goodness. And so you get a change in the cut, style, and fabric of suits that are coming inspired out of the country wear, the sporting wear that men would wear when they went out hunting. Think of it these days as if people started to wear, you know, comfy basketball jersey, jerseys and sweatpants and tennis shoes to formal occasions. Why? Because they moved better. They were more comfortable. They were more authentic. Also, of course, the wig went away and was replaced by kind of close-cropped, natural, windswept hair. And of course, humans being humans, this natural, windswept hair, like Lord Byron kind of looked, was heavily mannered. People spent a ton of time trying to make their hair look like they didn't spend any time trying to make their hair look like that. And in miniature, we can see in this change from tight, formal, stiff suits and wigs to more flexible, country-inspired suits and natural hair as a shift from politeness to sensibility. Politeness was this idea that the good gentleman would have poised control over his emotions and his reactions, that he would have good, well-mannered conduct and conversation. A reaction to this was the idea of sensibility, which said that politeness was artificial, false, wheedling. It didn't show the true self at all. It preferred the constant search for authentic experience. 
Over the 19th century, what happened to these suits was that they were slowly drained of color. First the pants, and then the jacket, and then finally only the waistcoat and tie were colorful and cool. Now, today, of course, it's only the tie that in male fashion is the thing that we can have bright, fun fabrics and colors. The model here also changed, the model of what fashion was. It changed from fashion being something that followed the courts and the elite to something that was dictated more by the market, by science, by people trying to figure out what was going on rather than just copying it. So now let's talk about how technology fits into all this. Of course, there's this incredibly rich historiography about the spinning and weaving of cotton and wool fabrics, and we're actually going to get to that maybe tomorrow. But today I want to talk not about how fabrics were made, but how fabrics were sewn and put together. A lot of people, even still in the middle of the 19th century, would buy fabric from a store and go home and sew them into a suit themselves. To get a suit sewn for you, you'd have to go to a tailor, which was expensive, and of course people didn't have a ton of money. One of the big changes starting in the middle of the 19th century is the sewing machine, which is invented in 1851 and slowly emerges from America to Britain and the rest of the world. What the sewing machine allowed was that it allowed for cheap sewing. This meant that people could move into buying ready-mades off of the shelf. These are non-tailored clothes that are made in a certain set of sizes that you can just put on without having anybody taking a needle and thread to them at all. This is how we have clothes today. Now, this is a change to production, and we have to also remember how these things were actually made, because they were made in something that we have a great deal of familiarity with today, sweatshops. In big cities like New York and London, a lot of immigrant women, a lot of them Jews, would gather into their homes and accept piece rate deals where they would get a bunch of fabric and they'd have to sew it up. Now this was distinguished from earlier kinds of piece rate work that you might have in the 17th or 18th century by a number of factors. First, it happened in cities, not in the countryside. Second, there was a division of labor. Whereas in the 18th century, you might get people making, you know, a whole shirt and getting paid for each shirt that they made. In the 19th century with a sewing machine, individual laborers were only responsible for individual parts of the garment, cuffs or collars or buttons or something like that. The third thing, of course, is speed. With the sewing machine, people can make clothes a ton faster. So they were a lot cheaper which made them both more accessible to the everyday person and it made the pay of these sweatshop workers a lot lower. And having a bunch of cheap clothes did something that we will be familiar with from our study of other objects like food and pottery. Because clothes were suddenly a lot cheaper, they became something that people could think about as an art or a science. They were more than just something that you could cover your body with. An increasingly large proportion of the population could use clothes as a kind of cultural symbol, and they could use them with a great deal more dexterity and fluidity than they could in the past when a jacket would cost a year's salary. 
And something that I've noticed with everything like this in the 19th century, there's basically two paths that these things can go. Some people want these new kinds of consumption to be an art. With food, we have gastronomy, food being raised from just something that you did to fill your belly so you'd have enough calories to farm, to a transcendent, artistic, personal, individual experience where you and the chef are linked in this communion over a wonderful and delicious parsnip. The other route that these things take is towards a science, okay? And with food, we can see this in the development of nutritional science that would try to figure out the wholesomeness and goodness of individual foods. And there's the same sort of process happening with clothing. Um, on the science side, there's a funny trend that comes from woolen underwear. Uh, people believe, especially this, this doctor named Gustav Jaeger, people believe that wearing wool close to the skin has super healthy properties because of some weird belief about the wicking of sweat or something. And people like Jaeger would push all woolen undergarments, you know, like those, those uh, cartoon pajamas that you see with the little uh, hatch at the bottom, to everybody, including, in a very 19th century way, African and Arctic explorers. Uh, so when you hear Dr. Livingston, I presume, the Dr. Livingston would be wearing Jaeger all-worn undergarments, and when Shackleton went up to the North Pole, he was wearing the same set of undergarments. The idea was that you would get the kind of healthful, regenerating powers of good European fiber directly against the skin. But there were also female clothing reformers who might be a lot more important. They fought against the restrictive and often overly lavish styles of the Victorian era, against the big hoop skirts and the corsets that literally kept women from moving as freely as they could. But they didn't just want to make women's clothing more flexible. They wanted to make it scientific. They wanted to make the clothing that people wore something that was the object of rational study, not something that was the object of the fickle dictates of fashion. And these clothing reformers did have a ton of results. They popularized these pants, these female pants, which we know as the bloomer. And they're part of the reason why in the early 20th century, female fashion started to turn its eyes towards male fashion and women would be wearing suit jackets and other things like that. But I don't want to give all the credit to female clothing reformers. We also have to thank the bike. In the late 19th century, bikes became a lot easier and safer to ride, and there was this trend in awesome young hip women riding bikes all over the place, much like today. Um, they were often part of socialist bike clubs where cool Fabian people would get together and hop on their bikes and ride through the countryside and have drunken picnics where they'd talk about Marx, I guess just like today. But the thing about bikes is that you needed to wear comfortable, form-fitting, clothes to ride them, and the fashion for bikes and the fashion for tennis, incidentally, helped change women's fashion to make it a lot more flexible. Now I want to talk about the bigger theme of fashion um, and zoom out a little bit. When a lot of academics write about fashion, they think of it as emulation. The idea is, at the top of the top, there's some sort of vibrant fashionable drift going on where different things go in and out of favor of a small group of choosy know-it-alls. The king starts to wear 
cuffs, and so everybody starts to wear cuffs. These new things filter down first to the friends of the super good people, then to the middle class people, and then finally to the lower class. And of course, there's a time delay as these things filter down. So the clothing of the middle class is always a couple years behind those of the upper class, and the clothing of the poor is always behind everybody else. A big representative of this is Thorstein Veblen, who had the idea of conspicuous consumption. The idea is that in the contemporary world, people are competing not on how much they can produce or how brave they are, but how awesome they can consume stuff. And they're in this constant race to outdo one another in fashionable excess. But it seems to me that this idea of top-down emulation kind of makes way too simple a story about it. Because with fashion, everybody is imitating everybody all the time. The British are imitating the French. The French are imitating the British. The poor people are imitating the rich people. And the rich people are imitating the poor people. Trousers, which become a key part of the three-piece suit, were originally working people's clothing. We already discussed how in the late 18th century, people adopted country clothes instead of city clothes to look kind of cool and daring. Well, these were also a little bit less high class than the clothes that they'd been wearing before. Um, another great example of this comes from jeans, which used to be called fustian, which started out as good, durable laboring wear, and they became popular in America because of the gold rush. In the 1960s, they became popular symbols of the counterculture, and now they're not symbolic at all. They're just something that, that people wear. Your manager can wear jeans and a button-down shirt and a suit jacket, and it's okay. Maybe it's casual Friday, but it's not like wearing a Hawaiian shirt to the office. So I think that instead of this conspicuous consumption, this idea of upper-class emulation, we should think instead about promiscuous emulation. That fashion isn't about people copying blindly the things that their betters do, but that it's about people copying everything around them, about people remixing what they can remix, about people looking at what's cool and daring and interesting and using that for themselves. Thanks very much for joining me today on Making of Historian. I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the use of his music. Please find him on Bandcamp and give him money. Also, thanks to Duncan Barton for giving us our image. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, share us in social media, and do all those other things that you do with things on the internet that you like. Thanks, and I'll see you tomorrow when we might be talking about coffee.